to another TeachCast. I'm back in DC now, I'm in the studio. I was last week, I guess, as well, but life goes by fast. But this week I have Frank Bruni, who is a legendary longtime writer at the New York Times, ranging from White House correspondent to The Hill. I remember him most vividly as the chief restaurant critic, because even though I am utterly uninterested in food, I always found his reviews really fun and, and actually could have maybe interested in food if I could get past probably my English-trained palate at some point. And he went on to be an op-ed columnist at New York Times as well, of course. And he's a, now a journalism professor at Duke. And his early days at the Detroit Free Press, he was a war correspondent, chief movie critic, and religion writer. He's written many books, but the one we're going to talk about today is his recent best-selling memoir, The Beauty of Dusk, on vision lost and found, which is a story that began really just waking up one morning and finding himself utterly changed. But before we get there, Frank, welcome. Nice to see you. It's great to see you. And I always ask this question because I think it's, it's a helpful one. And because we're talking about your life, it's completely actually integral to the, to the episode. Tell me where you were born and grew up, what your atmosphere was in your home, what it was like uh, to be you as a kid. <laughs> I was born and grew up for the first 12 years of my life in White Plains, New York, which is an interesting place in that it is at once a suburb of New York City and its own sort of gritty city as the center of Westchester County. And I grew up in a large Italian-American family, both in terms of uh, I had three siblings, two parents, obviously, that's that's the way this thing works, right? But also, you know, a cast of characters, you know, aunts, uncles, a grandmother, a grandfather, lots of food, which explains some of my trajectory later. But I grew up with a with a very kind of loud and loving family. And I hope that has that has made me a loving and and loud enough person. I don't I don't know I don't know about volume, but and White Plains was an interesting place as well because it had a foot in the city, a foot in the suburbs. It was diverse, but it was also, in some ways, classic American suburb. And so I, I think it I think it gave me a nice immersion in many different threads of American. And how did writing emerge as something that you like to do? Yeah, I, I'm guessing my answer is much the same as yours would be, but I'd be curious. I loved to read, and I, I revered good writing as, as a devoted and appreciative reader. And I wanted to do that thing that those writers did. I wanted to try to make music of language. I wanted to try to use language to to capture the difficult to capture truths around us. Isn't that isn't that a large measure of why you got into writing? I think so. It was really, I, I mean, when I ask myself why did I end up doing that, I think it's partly because it was the most feasible way for me to express myself. And yeah, I remember when I'm. 10, 11, 12, I was kind of precocious. And I would, I actually was reading Orwell. And I read, read him and then I would even, then there was this other poetry I would read because I was taught to, to speak poetry. And yeah, the power of those words, especially with Orwell when it got to politics, the clarity of his prose. Because I'd read, try and read a lot of books and however young you were, Orwell was instantly understandable. He did not, there was no words that I was trying to understand. He didn't seem to be uh, showing off in any way as a writer. And so, and then it was a huge insight for me that in fact, that was the best kind of writing, which he of course taught me. But I was mesmerized by that capacity. And of course, 
I want to do. And it came very easily to me, just very easily to me. But also I was, you know, I don't know how this affected you too, but you know, I was a little gay boy. I was a little scared of a social life, especially once puberty hit. I withdrew to some extent into my own little world, in my own little room. And there writing was kind of my only real outlet. And whether it was in my journals or whether it was trying to write poetry, which I did a lot of awful, excruciating poetry. <laughs> <laughs> I did the same. I did the same thing. I know what you mean. I'm it, one of my nightmares is someday someone finds and confronts me with sheets and sheets of bad poetry I wrote at the age of fourteen. You know, and I simply die of shame right there on the spot. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and they are excruciating. However, there were also when I, I found a few the other day and. Some of them were really insightful, too, about stuff you were going through in the ways that you didn't really see at the time. You know, they're, they're about some things, but you can tell they're about something else. So, yeah, and then it just sort of developed. And, I, and, 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 and also, I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to get out of where I was. And so I wanted to be, I wanted to go to Oxford or Cambridge. And so I, I, I was a nerd. I was just worked all the time. I read and worked and practiced and practiced until I got, got out of there. Maybe you weren't as driven to leave. Well, no, I was, I, I had a nerdy side and I, no, I definitely, as you were talking about, you know, growing up gay, feeling apart and estranged to some degree from everybody around you, finding a kind of refuge and solace in books, you know, first as a reader and then in words as a writer. Yeah, no, I, I relate to all of that. I, I don't think, I mean, it's a cliche, but I think it's true that a disproportionate number of gay people of our era, of our vintage went into the arts, writing as a kind of arts. And I think that's because they were looking for creative space that could that, that felt comfortable in a way the wider world didn't always because it was it was a different world. You and I have lived fascinating lives in part because we have seen such a sea change, such an amazing trajectory in the Western world, in the world at large. That was the other thing that I did as a teenager was I did drama. I did, I was in every school play. I was, I was always in theater and also my college and grad school. All I did was theater. I was supposed to be an actor and I probably would have been an actor because I wasn't, I wasn't bad at it. I can see you as King Lear. You'd be a good Lear. (laughs) I can definitely see you as King Lear. And that's a high compliment. That's my favorite Shakespeare play. Thank you. I think it's just my, my white beard that's, that's, that's bringing that on. But I played Hamlet at Harvard, the full uncut version of Harvard, of Hamlet. I can't believe I could memorize all of that. Now I probably couldn't, but yeah, and because being an actor was, you know, one of the things that an English gay boy could do. But I started <laughs> to chafe at this. I could tell as I was growing, I could chafe at this idea. That's what that's the acceptable gay thing to do. Now you'll be chairman right. of the National Opera. You can be part of the establishment, but always in these kind of airy fairy jobs that I didn't think were mainstream enough. So what happened to me was that. I I kind of renounced English as a discipline and I went into languages and history and politics because I thought that was kind of butching it up, I guess, to some ex- to some extent. <laughs> uh, but you never but you never really renounced English as a discipline. No, I no, mean, no, no, no. You're such a words person. You're a beautiful writer, and that's because that's never you've never strayed from no, uh, yeah, I'm 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 downplaying it as a, as, a, as an academic subject. I drop literature. I, actually, okay. I, I just did, okay. I actually do French literature, so maybe that's that's a that's a that's a get giveaway too. Anyway, we're talking about. <laughs> I guess we are talking because it was. I mean, one thing we could talk about that we both know a lot about is is growing up in our era and living now, 
at this point where I feel utterly <laughs> left behind, completely abandoned <laughs> by whatever the LGBTQR team community now is i definitely don't identify you, 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 you feel you've, you've been reduced to one consonant among many <laughs> yes from being absolutely unmentionable to being a consonant that's our that's no, our trajectory I, I think about you andrew i i hope you find this flattering but you know i i have struggled over the years in the pages or on the on the pixels or whatever we say now that it's so much of it is online of the new york times with where to where to stop my consonant cluster, you know, <laughs> and I know you've written about this, and and you're you're a you're a lean consonant holdout, oh, yeah. you know, and I was very slow to go from LGBT to the Q. I've stopped at the Q. I have students that do clearly, clearly an aid to fascism. I know I have students that do could go further. I think I occasionally relent and put a plus because at some point you cannot have the whole alphabet, you know, with the, the um, way it we... just becomes it becomes semantically or typographically or alphabetically perverse. You know? <laughs> yes. It's also when used as an adjective to describe one person, incredibly <laughs> misleading. I mean, so yeah. so and so is an LGBTQI plus person. I'm like, well, it's completely physically and mentally impossible to be all that at once. And now, isn't, isn't there isn't there now an A that means asexual? Yes, yes. But but no, in all seriousness, how did that end up in our cluster, right? So we we grew up with the, with the with the stereotype of gay men, gay men in particular, as hypersexual. But now there's a there's a letter cluster that has A along with the G. We've come a long way, baby. You know. Yes, it is remarkably sexless this era and de 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 binary, which of course is the essence of sex really yeah i'm as bewildered as you are frank although i'm also thrilled of course in a million different ways and my only concern now is that is that we may be overdoing it as opposed to getting ourselves recognized and accepted as fully fully a part of our families and our society but i digress that's Wait, but can i just yeah. say one thing i want i want to add to the thrilled work because i'm thrilled too and i'm glad to hear that in your voice i am also intensely grateful you know we we over 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 recent years especially since 2016 we've talked a lot about how low people can our our, our language about politics and and trajectories has not been very hopeful but i always try to remind my students and and other people around me i've seen just to, on this one frontier i've seen such progress and change in the world and that's an important part of the human story and an important part of human potential and I think it keeps me be from becoming a hopeless person. It, it, it nourishes my hope. For me, it's because it, is, it has happened at a granular human level. This is not some abstract set of laws that have just been imposed out of nowhere. It is actually a genuine social, emotional, human change that, that came from the ground up because I think it was built from the ground up. It, it, it came from ordinary people like us, essentially, deciding we don't want to live lies anymore and we want we don't want to have to abandon being ourselves in order to to succeed or be part of the world we belong to and 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 we persuaded other people families family members most important of all because that was the real infectious sense you don't don't mess with my son don't mess with my daughter you know that that was the second wave of it which was incredibly powerful with the marriage movement and i also think that our 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 attempt to focus on marriage as the a key emotional psychological question did help open up 
it as an emotional, psychological question, not as some sort of entirely sexual lifestyle that might happen in some distant city, but actually as a, a story about human beings and their actual obvious commonality with straight people in our loves and desires. And you were you were a pioneer and you were ahead of the curve on that. And I, I thank you for it. And, and I it, it's something I think about a lot. And I talk about a lot with acquaintances and, you know, fellow professors and all that. There's a lot that today's progressives could learn from that. Because to me, the brilliance of you and others who said, let's let's really kind of foreground this marriage equality movement, what's now called marriage equality, it was saying to people, we're not trying to blow up everything about your world. We're not trying to exploit it. In fact, we want in on it. You know, we're not we're not challenging your paradigm. We're saying we respect it enough that we'd like to have our own purchase on it. I think there are a lot of really important political lessons in that in terms of how you make change and how you disarm people and how you bring them around to, to, to your viewpoint and to seeing you with dignity. You, you don't do it by telling them how awful they and their institutions are. You do it by saying, I want to join. I want to better it. Or that I'm already part of it. Will you yes. stop being mean to me? Although that doesn't, that <laughs> doesn't seem the case in the Catholic Church. But, but, but well, it's, it's actually, as you probably know as well as I do, Catholics themselves that one encounters are not cruel and the vast majority are not hostile in any way. In fact, they're incredibly supportive, as obviously the current Pope is as well. Yeah, it does give me a huge amount of, of hope. I do also think, and maybe this does bring us to your book, that one of the key things that happened to make that possible suddenly was a hideous asteroid from outer space, which is the AIDS virus, which which entered one day someone woke up and couldn't, in ways that you could describe, couldn't see because they had toxoplasmosis in their, in their eyeball or cytomegalovirus, sorry, cytomegalovirus. And suddenly our entire world was stopped and shaken. And for a decade or so of unimaginable terror and grief, that emotional experience resonated with people and they saw who we were, humans. Well, they, they saw who we were because, as you know as well as I, the stakes of staying in the closet versus coming out were so huge. I think there had been, I may have the, the wording or the adage wrong, but I think it had been said even before the AIDS crisis that everybody who is gay or lesbian turned purple or turned a different color tomorrow. The, wide, the wider group of people would realize this, this includes people I love, people I respect. Well, that's kind of what the AIDS crisis, it showed the world both through who got sick and both through all of those of us who rallied to their sides, it showed the world just how numerous we were, just how much courage and love we had in us. It prompted people both immediately and over the years to come, to come out of the closet and to say, hey, dad, hey, daughter, hey, cousin, I'm a gay person. Now, what do you think of us? And when that happened, you said it happened at a granular level. That was the granular level. When that happened, people realized they could no longer objectify and vilify and demonize gay and lesbian people because gay and lesbian people were their uncles, their aunts, their daughters, their sons. I remember my, one of my closest friends got AIDS quite quickly, but he was not out to his family. And he actually came from a deep Southern and in two years, we had to go from meeting his family to in engaging his family to telling his family, first of all, that he was gay, and then a second round of telling them that he had AIDS, and then him dying. 
And I remember the funeral in a tiny, tiny southern town where his family was kind of pretty well known. And as we, and we were called his special friends, showed up <laughs> next to him, we, we, we took the, the car, the, 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 the hearse through the streets of the little town and, and people lined the streets and bowed their heads for this kid because they knew this kid. I mean, he was very much yeah. a part of them. And suddenly this kid who was, you know, a real feature of their lives and was very much part of their world was gone. And of course that will, that's like a, that's like a depth charge to the psyche of a country. And I think, yeah. And, and it's, so in that respect, and I, I want to be careful in how I say this, but yeah, I mean, indeed for me, being diagnosed in that way at that time was such a clarifying moment. Out of it came, out of that unspeakable terror came this adaptability, this ability to grow from it and to not let it just disappear, not let it defeat you. It could have so easily, it would be so easily to internalize all that notion that you're being punished by God for this, which seemed just only gays are getting, I mean, it was, it was like something out of the Old Testament, essentially. And not to buy that mentality at the time strikes me as incredibly moving that people didn't do that when they so easily could have. And, and from that grew. So adversity desperate, un, un, unforeseeable, hideous adversity, even that can prove in some way good or, or lead us towards something good. So one, one night you went to sleep and the next morning you woke up and your right eye was just smeary and wee, woozy. And whether, <laughs> sorry, I'm trying to think of the words you no, used. No, no, I mean, I, I struggle even now to describe it. So I'm laughing just because I relate. Yeah. I, well, I kind of imagine a kind of, you know, like a bad contact lens that has sort of gotten really mucked up and yeah. it comes and goes and so on. And what I found like really relatable about your story is your absolute ability immediately to dismiss that anything is going on. Yeah, no, I was in denial for about 24 hours, for sure, because it was just so hard to fathom. I woke up and nothing looked right. And I mean, I could still see well enough, but, you know, something was wrong. And it just it just didn't compute that I could go to bed and wake up and the world would suddenly look so much fuzzier and et cetera. You know, but then I, I the real whopper was within a matter of days as I saw a succession of doctors and went through all these kinds of eye tests that I never even knew existed before. The real whopper was, was I was told about three or four days later, okay, there's a 40% chance this will happen to your other eye, in which case I would, I would be blind. And how do you live with that? But you know, I mean, I'm talking to you. I mean, you, you, you've had medical news that amounted to, we can't tell you what's in your future. You mentioned adversity before. It, it really does force you to ask yourself questions and make psychological adaptations and emotional adjustments that you were never asked to make before and that really kind of test you and help you discover who you are. I mean, that, that's what I hope I wrote about in the book. It's, it's about a medical odyssey in the first quarter of the book. And you know, you do follow me along as I have needles stuck in my eye and all sorts of other fun stuff. But I think at the end of the day, it's about something that I think is entirely universal, you, which is when you're dealt a devastating surprise, when you are shown just how, peril how perilously close that sword that dangles over us 
is to you. How do you adjust? What do you do? How do you find optimism and how do you just keep moving forward and making the most and the best of it? You're right. It's about dusk. It's about those first real inklings that the day isn't forever and that light inexorably fades. It's about a rising and then peaking consciousness that you're on borrowed and finite time. It's about a shifting temperature, an altered ambiance. I, uh, the hardest thing I had to wrap my head around in that period of time when I was given that diagnosis and my friend died was, how do I understand my life in the context of his? I am no more worthy and certainly no more significant a soul than my beloved friend. I'm going to live, I don't know how long. Well, this is what happened once I learned I was going to survive. So what does that mean about my life? Do I win a prize? Because I lived for seven decades, let's say, if I'm lucky, rather than three as he did. Obviously, life is not about the number of years you get to tick off. I thought of it again, like life is like having a college career. It's like a four-year thing. No one gets more. It's just how you, how you live those four years that matters. Basically, you were confronted with mortality. But that's, that, that's what your life means in the context of his death. It, what, I mean, what it means is that if you don't relish the good in it, if you don't make the most of it, if you spend your time tallying your misfortunes and what you don't have, rather than kind of embracing and relishing those things that are positive and give you joy and help you make a meaningful contribution, you are, you are dishonoring his life and how early it ended. I am so much better since five years ago when I woke up to this odd vision problem and when I was told I might go blind, I am so much better about appreciating everything good that happens in a given day. I'm so much better about prioritizing what has meaning to me and what I wanna do with my time and what brings me joy because I just appreciate the privilege of being here and of having the faculties I do have when so many don't. I, I did something and I'm curious if you did it as well, Andrew, I did something instinctively that I think was really important and I hope other people going through tough times do it themselves, which is I looked around me and I, I did a fresh inventory of the people I knew and the people just beyond them and acquaintances just beyond them. And I looked at them in terms of what I knew when I, when I focused on it, they had struggled with, they were struggling with, what obstacles they had in their life as opposed to the lacquered images they put of their life on Instagram or on Facebook. And I realized what a useless and false emotion self-pity is. I, I, I used to pity myself in ways and at times it's just ludicrous and it's criminal. And I don't do that anymore because I have a much, much more realistic, much, 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 much more realistic perspective on how people live, what they go through, and the fact that we all carry with us certain certain hardships. I remember this is just mine. Walking through this is a very strange sort of epiphany I had like a couple of decades ago walking across Dearborn Circle. I was kind of I was I was seriously depressed at the time. And I remember looking at all the faces in Dupont Circle and thinking, if one person could just experience all the pain that all these people have experienced in their lives at once, he would be destroyed. Right. That walking around me in in this public context of all these faces is someone's lost child someone's fatal illness someone's terrible right. marriage someone's abusive parent some victim of crime i know this sounds like a grim way of going through life thinking of this but 
it means you don't know anything about any of these people, actually. You, 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 no, you, you don't. don't. No, and that's why the chapter of the book that meant the most to me in the writing and that most people talk to me about if they've read the book is the one that's called The Sandwich Board Theory of Life. And it's it's that DuPont circle moment you just talked about. I, I, I kept thinking to myself as I went through this process, if everybody around us was wearing a sandwich board that just listed some of the biggest things they had dealt with or were dealing with in that moment, you know, my spouse just died, all, all the things you just ticked off, we, we would understand our own struggles in a much more accurate, a much truer context, we would be much less prone to self-pity. And, and just as crucially, I think we would be much, much more quickly and profoundly moved toward empathy. And, and I think it's, it's important to work at being a more empathetic person, and I hope I've become. Yeah, also a, a person of simpler needs, that the, the, the recognition that, in fact, we already have everything in front of us. I mean, one of my, one of my, and I, don't, I can't remember if this is apocryphal or not, but the phrase is that travel narrows the mind because if you're not careful, you're going around the world or many different places getting superficial, quick glimpses of all these things and feeling like an Instagram profile that you're cool and magnificent. Whereas actually, if you just stayed home, if you walked the streets, you normally walked, but opened your eyes and listened or paid attention it's as miraculous as anywhere else in the world. It's all or, in front of you. Or closed your eyes and listened. I, I write in the book, as you know, about a, a, a strangely little known historical figure as a British travel writer, the best known travel writer of, of his era, which was about 200 years ago. He was blind and he wrote these massive travel chronicles based on, on the stories people told him, based on the smells of places, the sounds of places. There are so many ways to take in the splendor of the world, and the splendor of the world is so vast that you can just take it in in a couple of those ways, and you're still left with such riches. And that's what his life shows us. And it's a fascinating life. I don't know why he's not better now. No, I think that the the prominence and and power of, of blind people in the past is, is often overlooked in a strange kind of way. I, I'm a, I got my first job in journalism because I was hired by a completely blind deputy editor of the Daily Telegraph. His name was T.E. Utley, Peter Utley. He was, he, he wore an eye patch like a pirate. And he had, he was, he, <laughs> he did. And Sinbad, Sinbad, the newspaper. And you were like, he's yeah. editing a whole bloody paper. He can't see a thing. And being around him and watching that and watching how he, well, there were two things about, he, you could, he, his hearing was so extraordinary and he didn't miss anything. He knew when someone came in the room, he knew who it was who came in the room, just simply by the, the sense of, of where they were. And then his hands, these became sort of, they, they touched very gently everything around him so that he could tell where everything was. I, you would go to an Italian dinner with him, which I would sometimes do, and he, he would somehow maneuver all of it with, with barely, barely making it. He had learned through touch how to navigate life, and he would dictate his own columns, dictate the editorials. He would have it read to him 
by a series of incredibly attractive young women who also was the great joke is the blind guy in the office has this ser series of unbelievable knockouts who are working for him. And of course, they were entranced by this, this guy because he was such a character. The one thing I'll always remember about him was that he would, as he would dictate, he would pace up and down the wall and keeping his office wall, keeping his shoulder sort of close to the wall. And as he would gently hit the other wall, he would turn himself around and come back. And along the wall at about waist high is a permanently etched, ashed line of his cigarettes that were being slowly ashed across that through God knows how many and how many times he'd done that. And of course, how could one not but revere this man. I mean, he, he's an extraordinary example, but but a representative one as well of, of our ability to adapt, you know, for the purposes of the book. And then just socially, I spent a lot of time with a blind circuit court judge in Washington, D.C. named David Tatel, whom I write about in the book. And he had, a, I mean, he was, he was at a court just one tick below the Supreme Court. He had been blind since his early 30s. So he was doing all of that highest level jurisprudence without eyesight. You know, he was listening to things, having things read to him. It did not slow him down at all. And when I was with him, we would walk from his uh, from his chambers to the metro, which was several blocks away. You know, we'd be crossing traffic streets, etc. I kept expecting him to grab my arm and for me to kind of guide him. But he had, like the editor you, you spoke of, he had learned so well how to kind of suss out his physical surroundings from sounds. It's called echolocation. He had memorized the number of steps from the bench to his chambers, from his chambers to the front door of the courthouse, and on and on. We're extraordinary that way. And I re I'll always remember one day when we walked from his chambers to the metro, through the metro, he guided me onto the train. He did all of this. I mean, I was there as a kind of backup and failsafe not as a scout and a chaperone. And I knew him well enough then, Andrew, to kind of know he wouldn't feel patronized or wouldn't take it the wrong way. We sat down on the Metro and I said, David, I said, I have to tell you, like, that that's it's extraordinary to me that you can navigate the city this way. I'm just I, I'm I'm so I'm so astonished and, and, and impressed and humbled. And he said, you know, Frank Star, he said, Frank Starfish can regrow limbs. Mm. That's nothing compared to what people can do. And, and that's that's a true that's a true statement. There's no hyperbole there, because the brain, as we increasingly understand it, can regrow, can adjust. In, it's incredibly plastic, and can relearn things late in life. You, there are, it's an extraordinary thing in our brain. The most, it's probably the most amazing thing we've ever come across in the universe, the human brain. Can, can make new neural connections. It's, it's one of the, the shifts in medical understanding over recent decades. They're used to the, the prevalent, the widespread, the, the, the default belief was that at a certain point, your brain stopped being able to kind of adapt and grow and, and generate new, new neurons and new, new connections. Now we know that that goes on throughout a lifespan, almost to the end. Um, and that should be that should be a great consolation to those of us who are, uh, I'll speak for myself, not you, Andrew, but who are getting on in years. Well, I'm older than you. Screw you. Are you? I, I think I don't know. Well, let's not get into that right now. Okay. <laughs> I think I think I'm, I think I got a couple of years okay. on you. Okay. Well, who knows? How old are you? How old are you? I'm 59. <gasps> okay, you got me. Yeah, you see. I'm, I'm on the cusp of 58. Okay, well, we're there both we are. We're both knocking on the door. We of are. 60. We are the six. The six O thing really. It's really looming large for me because it's going to happen next year, and I'm 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 figuring out exactly how to 
manage it. There was a there's a kind of tension in the book about both the acceptance of mortality, you know, that that somehow you get to a point where you have actually accepted that you will die and that life is finite. But the the notion that you're going to therefore cram everything you possibly can into it or become a, 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 a cross the world in a boat or climb Everest, <laughs> this, that seems to be not actually a very healthy approach to, to mortality. So that's not what you mean. The, the learning no. of stuff is simply a, sim a simply a statement that the present is always available to us if we want to, and that the human mind is an extraordinary thing and can change and adapt. Yes, and that also, I think it's so important, what we sometimes call limits or what can feel like limits, it, they're, really just, they're really just new circumstances. You know, I mean, there are things I can't do, but I'm still left with so much I can do. Right. And in this life, some of the some of the, one of the toughest things I've always found about navigating life is what do I do with the hours I'm awake? You know, when I when I when I step up to the buffet of possibilities in a given day or in a given year or in a given life, the truth is that buffet is is overabundant. And when certain abilities are taken away from you, when you're told as I was, you should probably not go above ten thousand feet anymore. That might not be good for your remaining eye. Okay, great. Now it's easier to decide my next vacation. I'm cutting out the world above 10,000 feet. You can have that attitude and that is not that is not just a happy dappy positive thinking attitude. That's the reality. You know, I mean, your your parameters have shifted and changed in a way that you can decide this makes it easier for me to decide what I'm, what I'm going to do next. I I can't read as quickly as I once did. That will never happen again, but I have learned in these last five years to listen to books, which I could never do before. I now listen to them at like 1.7, 1.8, 1.9 speed. That judge I mentioned, he's up at 2.5 and I think I'm gonna get there at some point. And that's opened up something new to me. I walk through the woods here in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where I live with my dog. And I listen to like two thriller novels a week. I couldn't do that five years ago. I choose to focus on that. And, and you have to learn to do that. To, to reorient your thinking toward what's still available as opposed to what's lost. One of the things you write in the book is, for blind people, the individuality of things announces itself long before the unity. So a moment like that where your senses are altered, you adjust so that the blind person, like my old the boss, knew intimately the, the, the smell of a meal that was coming or the 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 the, the 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 physical attractiveness even of someone he couldn't even see and it became more i want to say the word granular again but i mean more tactile more immediate it's it's as if it's as if by removing the vast spaces you get to see what's actually in front of your nose in a more concentrated way in other words we need to be filtered and and in some ways something like this filters things Yes, and, and I, I actually, this this is the weirdest thing for me, because people have said, do you hear better than you used to? Because there's some literature and some science that, you know, that your brain emphasizes that I, I don't think I do. People have asked me, do tactile, is, is, the ta is the sensation of touch, is tactile stuff much more prevalent, important? That hasn't exactly happened to me. But what has happened is the visual information available to me. This is so hard to describe, Andrew, but it's so, it's so miraculous to me and so reassuring in a way. 
the visual information available to me, I process and make better sense of. Mm. I see things I didn't before, not because I actually see more clearly in an anatomical sense, I don't, but I, I, I focus on relevant information. That's how my brain has rewired itself. I notice contours. I notice stuff I didn't before that enables me to get as much information visually as I used to. It's just not, not because I'm seeing more acutely, but because my brain is doing a better job of picking out the most telltale relevant information out there. So I write in the book about running at night and being able to avoid, this was when I was still living in Manhattan and running in Central Park, being able to avoid little potholes and dips because I was I was alert to them in a whole new way, even as my vision was less clear. I, it's so hard to describe. I'm failing to do it. I hope I do it better in the book. But it's a it's a lesson in and a parable about how something can be taken away and you can still actually function as well by by leaning on other resources, by kind of honing other faculties. Or why your sight is such a function of your brain rather yeah. than your actual eyesight, as it were, because your brain is making sense of it all so that your brain will adjust to... I actually have one, one contact lens in one eye, which is weird because actually if I do that, my brain will will counter because one is short-sighted one is long-sighted will balance it all out it took a couple of days because i'm like i need two lenses right no just one it's and it's half the price so there was a <laughs> well it's yes it was half i have half as many and i have to renew it every, much less often so it was perfect but i realized then oh it's 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 in my head these images right. are in my head and the other experience that comes across is on mushrooms or on some elements of, of psych psychedelic drugs, you suddenly see colors that were, not, in, were not, not there before, but your brain has allowed your eyes to see them. It, is, it has removed certain, certain lenses, certain curtains, certain drapes in front of your eyes that are often put there by your brain so that you do focus on what you need to focus. And if you yes. take your brain off that, so you go back to the default mode, and you can actually see the world as it actually is, <laughs> then, then, then it changes. So I, I identify with a lot of that. It is, it is possible. And that's from having a perfectly decent eyesight, and just, but just seeing more on top of, on yeah. top of what, and, and it's not like the world has changed. No, no, not at it's all. It's your brain but, um, has changed. Yeah. It's just, I, I think eyesight, I mean, it, it, I write about this in the book. Um, I think sight is the sense that we are, it's the one we reference most in our vocabulary. I mean, the number of words that stem, you know, the, the number of meanings of see, right. you know, almost infinite. Right. But I think it's also the sense, I also, I also think of the five senses, it's the one we're most terrified to lose. I mean, there's, if you think about kind of movies and literature, et cetera, blindness is used as, as a kind of metaphor or as a, or as a terror in a way that I don't think anything else is. Yeah. Yeah. It's people, and, people know, in COVID bring, brings us back to Lear. We're back to King people, Lear. People with COVID <laughs> lost their sense of smell and taste, which was bewildering to them, but it would nothing like if they had lost their sight, that would have, right. that would have been far, far, far more dangerous. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking also about the source of the most joy and comfort <laughs> in a life that's suddenly stricken with this might be a spouse or a, a loved one. Yours actually had this experience. You had an experience of breaking up with somebody after this happened, which <laughs> yeah, is so just like six months yes. after. Yeah. Well, life is life, 
shit happens. Exactly. Obviously. But of course, a dog rescued you and the you probably spend now what probably if you I mean I'm just three hours a day walking your dog. I mean one and a half hours in the morning, one and a half hours in the evening or something like that. Well, I was I was definitely doing that in New York because I felt so guilt stricken and concerned about having, you know, an athletic 55 pound dog in a 1400 square foot apartment that I felt like not only should the dog be exercised, but to give her proper stimulation. And, you know, Central Park is I mean, it was a, it was a wonderful thing because I I I explored and learned Central Park, which had been this thing in my life that was completely overlooked for so huh. long. Through my ventures with, I got to know every contour of that park. I, I, I mean, talk about talk about noticing and relishing new wonders in your life. In that sense, Central Park was was a concrete example of that, but also a metaphor. Now, in in Chapel Hill, we uh, we have woodland trails all around us, but I don't think it's three hours a day. I, if if I'm going to be really honest, I, I I put her in doggy daycare three days a week so that I can get so errands done and some writing accomplished. And she's exhausted by the end of the day. Uh, only she's out of Oh, yeah. She comes home from doggy daycare and she basically, you know, gives gives me a lick on the cheek and goes upstairs and hops on the bed and I find her there hours later. When, when I used to put my dogs in the daycare, when I would go on a trip and come back, they'd be incredibly animated when I get to see them. They're completely bonkers. But then within an hour, completely wiped out, sleep for days, <laughs> with not used to having this kind of... What what, do you, what interests me about, about observing the world around you is that, you know, humans... For the vast majority of our existence on Earth, and, I, and this is a theme I, I come back to a lot because I think it's about our, our nature, we didn't actually cover in our own lives a vast amount of, of terrain. We didn't visit a million different places. For the vast majority of us, for the vast majority of time, we got to know a small area in ways that we never do anymore. In other words, that that because there was no noise, there was no traffic, mm. you learned the sounds of, let's say, the woodlands. You learned the the cycles of the moon. You learned the, the, the every sign of a seasonal change. You would learn when you would notice shifts in. You would know where the animals went. You would. The yeah. more you lived in the world around you and the more you were focused on that because you had to focus on it for terms of terms of safety to some extent, also in terms of opportunity and food and all the rest of it, but that you developed this incredibly deep relationship with where you already were. Yeah. And yeah. to me, I know as a, as a boy, I lived in, I spent most of my time when I was free when I wasn't in my little room reading my Latin, I'd be I'd be <laughs> I'd be wandering around the woodlands around where I where I lived. And I knew I knew the pathways in every single little copse. I knew I knew when the bluebells would start to bloom. I I I, I knew when the leaves began. I mean it's the whole thing was just so intuitive to me. And even now I have I'm really not that into covering whole new places. What I'm into is rediscovering and finding new stuff about where I already am. That's why I go back to Provincetown every summer for four or five months, because that place is so wild and mysterious and wonderful in so many different ways, naturally, I'm speaking, that you'll never tire of it. 
if if you if you find a place that that captures your imagination like that and that has enough layers to to always be revealing something new to you, my God, what a, what a great blessing! And I, I agree with you. And I so enjoy. I've been here in my neighborhood in Chapelville for I think 15, 16 months. And because of Regan, because of my love of walking in the woods, Regan is the name of your dog. Just to... yes, yes, I should say Regan. And and by the way, we've been talking about King Lear. No connection to King Lear. Oh, if you were going to name unconsciously, you're Frank, name your dog, you've, you've, you've given your it dog all. Would have to be Cordelia. Not Regan or Goneril. Can you imagine naming your dog Goneril? Yes. That would just be a real be fantastic. People would think you're <laughs> shouting about STIs. But I mean, I, I have neighbors who have lived on my street for 25 years. I show them new trails around here because I have just mapped it that exhaustively. And it has been such fun and so rewarding. And it's such a pleasure to, in fact, know, okay, if it's rained this much, I should cross the creek here rather than here. At this time of day, the light's going to be prettiest in that direction. Right. To have that sort of intimacy yeah. is is such a privilege and such a, such a joy. You describe at one point what dogs appreciate about life, which is basic meals at hunger-staving st- intervals, visit with fellow members of our species, and many hours of deep, uninterrupted sleep really do go a long way. <laughs> Much else is gravy. And I, I just, I think those are words of extraordinary wisdom. I, in some ways, I keep my life very simple. I'm not, as, unlike you, I, I really could give a damn about food, but I get it done at, at least. But I'm, as long as it's on a regular basis, as long as I have a regular morning walk or lunchtime walk generally and an evening walk with my dog, I don't mind wearing the same clothes every day. I don't mind eating the same food. Ever. I'm notorious if I go to a restaurant and I like to meal, I just reorder the meal every time I go there because I'm, I'm that kind of conservative when it comes to, I know I like this, so like, why should I risk not liking something? I'm going to have what I like. I, at P-Town, I have the same breakfast every morning at the same place. And I don't even have to order. I just walk in and they, they, they know what to get. And that's... that's. I, I'm curious. I want to know what that breakfast is. Now. Oh, it's fantastic. It's it's called a folded Mexican egg. It's a, it's a, it's like, it's kind of pork inside with, with lots of sour cream and salsa and kale salad. And it's, 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 it's absolutely scrumptious. That's a heavy breakfast. How does that put you not, how does that not put you right back to sleep? I don't eat, I don't eat lunch. Okay. Um, I eat a big breakfast and I eat a light dinner. I I skip lunch now. That's how I get okay. through this. So I, it f- fuels me for the day. But no, I don't get, I don't pass out afterwards, it, even though it is a kind of mighty, mighty early breakfast. I'm English. I guess I was brought up on those big breakfasts. I just find if I, if I eat too big a breakfast, I feel, I mean, this is not a medical description. This is how I experience it in my imagination. All the blood rushes to my stomach from my brain, which is not suffused with any excess of blood as it well, is. It's, and, I, and I'm ready for a nap. <laughs> it's accompanied by the ingestion of vast amounts of caffeine. So, yeah, so yeah. It, it's, it used to be, when I, before I developed that, I had this terrible habit of getting up, because this is when I was blogging every day, getting up at eight o'clock, it's immediately going through all the news filtering up, trying to, because I was blogging every 20 minutes, co- kind of coordinating with my interns and my my colleagues and i would just drink coffee and i would have a box of ginger snaps which i would just dunk in the coffee had to be cheap ass nabisco ginger snaps ginger snaps yeah so i would live until around 1 or 2 p.m entirely on caffeine and sugar which would get me through that will that will uh, turbocharge a brain it definitely yeah yeah but by two o'clock then i was completely wired and exhausted and then if i had lunch then i'd be completely wiped out for the rest of the day so it, it, okay. i learned 
I learned it wasn't working. It wasn't working for me. You were, I, as, as Oprah would say, you were not living your best life. No, but that's, maybe that is I, it's both an awful phrase and a good phrase. It's a trouble when you talk about the lessons of these things. Everything comes out as a fucking hoary cliche. I mean, you right. were painfully aware of this in the book. So <laughs> you're constantly saying, I know this sounds like cliche, but embrace the moment, <laughs> right? Well, I mean, the funny thing is all those cliches, all those greeting card sentiments, the precise locutions of them are sometimes cringe-inducing, but they're out there for a reason. There, there, There is, in many of them, if not most of them, a kernel of wisdom. And in some of them, there's a whole cornfield of wisdom. Yeah. You know? All you need is love. Is the people are dropping off of this dish cast as we as we <laughs> no and Michael Pollan was really smart about this too but he he because when you when you actually do one of these psychedelics that puts you in touch with like MDMA with the waves of benignness within you and love within you I feel like I'm at Woodstock all well, of a sudden dude, Andrew what's going on well, no, I'm just... I feel like I better can I go upstairs and put on my tie dye no come on and... we're 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 not in the seventies anymore. We're, we're very 2020 psychedelics, okay. which is all okay. super scientific. But what I was, what was I getting at there? That when he wanted to describe these things, he just said that cliches are just the, is something true which had been worn out into a husk of, mm -hmm. of language because the, the truth is, is so deep that, in fact, it cannot be communicated in anything but cliche. And the, the drug for that temporarily reminds you that the cliche is true. However awful well, I think, it is. I think I say in the book, I can't remember, but you know, you as as you know, you've written books like you, you end up having to kind of proof pages enough that at a certain point you almost feel like you've memorized your damn book, right? right? And and I think I say in the book that cliches are, are kissing cousins with verities and down market analogues of insights. And I think that's right. Yeah. Speaking of which, here we go. <laughs> Living in the present, taking each day as it comes. Savoring the positive, dwelling less on the negative, accepting. That's not from my book. <laughs> yes, it is. That language? Yes. That Those phrases? Page 277. Let me find it. Oh, okay. I guess uh, I didn't memorize it, even though I read the whole damn thing. Here we go. No, no, no. It, I, I'm, I don't mean to set you up this way, because in fact, in the context, you're talking about these cliches, but you're also talking okay. about their salience. Nonetheless, that they may be cliches, but they're also true accepting, not overreacting, setting realistic goals, prioritizing the really important people and relationships in life. There's a, and that was one of the things that I discovered with a sudden kind of existential crisis is that who are my friends and who are not? And do I have time for those who are not? And there came a point, this is especially true in the AIDS epidemic where one just had to, one just had to be efficient. And if someone didn't, well, if, if someone didn't. No, no, it's so true. It's just yeah, right. Hear, hearing efficient in the context of social life or even romantic life, very true and wise, but just sounds so cold. Yeah, know? well, the truth is cold sometimes, but it, it's yeah. true. And I, it's mm -hmm. like, do I have time? Do I have time in my life right now, given I might not have much longer to spend another afternoon trying to explain this to somebody who's never going to understand? Or do I just stick with the people who already understand? And and because just just out of both efficiency and also sanity and maximizing the time that you have. On the other hand, uh, that's the first thing you also believe. How? Why have I not spent more time with my friends, with my family? Why am I ignoring them? 
Why am I not thinking about them? Why? Because those are the things that you realize in these moments are actually what really matter, as opposed to this. I think you. I think the phrase you had that your friend, the uh, the guy who became a Jesuit, the phrase oh, um, the f- Cyrus Cyrus Habib. Yeah, the phrase he had was, oh, "I'll find it." I think I know what you're talking life, about. Something life became so busy with ambition. Yeah, life became so busy. Period. Now that busy with ambition, I think that's. That is one of the things that during that crisis of my own life, when I just turned 30, before, just before I turned 30, was, well, I'm done. <laughs> so all this idea of this destiny that you have, that you've, you've created in your mind of a future, all the ambitions, suddenly you realize, I can't, why am I living, basing my life on stuff that might never, ever happen? And it's really actually out of my control. The, the illusion of control is, mm. is what I lost. And yeah. that is that you, 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 at some point you keep forgetting that you, you, you go back to your normal, normal worries and obsessions and plans and pride and how well did my book do and how many subscribers do I have and blah, 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 all that stuff. <laughs> and am I worth anything anymore to, you know, those kind of stuff and realize what, 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 what a waste of my energy and time. Am I doing something meaningful today or not? Well, I mean, we, we should tell listeners. So you just quoted Cyrus Habib, who said his life had become too busy with ambition. We should tell people who yeah, he is. You or, tell, you tell, what, to tell because, the story. Because it's such, an, it's such an extraordinary transformation he made. So Cyrus Habib, who is blind and uh, went went blind at eight from a rare childhood cancer, nonetheless excelled at school. I shouldn't say nonetheless, because there's no contradiction there. Excelled at school, went to Columbia University as an undergrad, won a Rhodes Scholarship, went to Yale Law, where his roommate one year was Ronan Farrow, went on to a career in politics. When I first interviewed him, was the lieutenant governor of the state of Washington and was in his mid-30s. I think he was the youngest person who'd ever been lieutenant governor of Washington. He was, in that sense, on paper, a rising Democratic star, and he was well-positioned to become the next governor of Washington state, and people pretty much thought that's what was what, what was ahead of it. He decided to chuck all of that and not just take vows to become a Catholic priest, but to become a Jesuit, which is a long course of training, an enormous degree of asceticism. He is now living in a Jesuit, I think it's called a novitiate. I, I, I get my terms wrong, they're correct in the book, but I can't remember them. You know, he's now living, having taken vows of poverty and obedience and chastity in a Jesuit community. He is spending his days in service to people in need, and this will be his life from now forward. And he chose that because he felt that the tyranny of ambition, the tyranny of worrying what other people were going to think of him, the tyranny of making every decision in accordance with how he was going to show people what he was capable of, how he was going to impress people. He didn't want to do any of that anymore. And there are a lot of people who go through that. And so they step off the fast track a little bit. They, they take a new kind of job. This is a life change and a life transformation that is extraordinary and profound. And that's why I tell many stories, as you know, in the book, I do. There are a lot of miniature profiles, everyone from him to, you know, to, to friends from college who dealt with Parkinson's. But he's just such an interesting portrait of someone who decided to and learned how to tune out all that noise um, that governs life for so many of us and to just listen to his truest, purest, 
humblest inner, inner voice. That all sounds, and I have to let you know this is this 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 is this book. Are we back in cliche no, land? No, no, I'm no, sorry. no, 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 no. <laughs> we're we're I, I just such a Catholic book. This book, that the values that it is espousing, which are essentially humility, acceptance of your mortality, openness to others, but more profoundly, the sense that suffering itself can be a virtue which is such a strange doctrine, which is integral to Christianity, which is somehow that it was intense suffering that saved humankind. It's in, through intense suffering that we come to know God. That in some ways that poverty is not something to be overcome, but to be embraced as a way to see God's importance and power and, and your need for it. And Again, we can say those things, they sound really wonderful, but who among us actually has the courage to live by them? As as your friend Cyrus Habib did, and Habib, just walk yeah. away like St. Francis did, just walk away yeah. and go hug a leper. The, well, that's literally <laughs> what he did. No, I know, but it's, when, you say, when you say it that way, it just has a, it has a strange ring to I know, it. I know, I know, I know. I'm yeah. just being silly. Well, you brought up a Catholic. How was, how was the church in your early life? Forgive me for asking. I, I was brought up Catholic in the most lenient sense. I, I was brought up a cultural Catholic, which is what is true for so many Italians um, and for so many Southern Italians, as my grandparents were. I mean, the church was an ornamental part of life. Its, its rituals were part of the rhythm of life. The pageant of the church was interwoven with, with Italian theatricality in general and in my family. But I wasn't, there wasn't a lot of God talk around the house. There wasn't a lot of kind of sin and redemption talk around the house. I was an altar boy. I did go to Sunday school. And your reaction to the book and the reaction of many friends who are, are religious to a greater degree than I am, not religious like Cyrus Sabit, does make me wonder how much of that early in life Catholicism, lenient as it was, how much of it lives in me and how deep an impression it made on me in ways I don't fully understand. I I, I, I think quite a, a big one. I mean, I think also for, for people like of our age that grew up, we were growing up just in the wake of the Second Council. We were born just after it or during it. And the Catholicism I had did have its element of guilt and sin and fear, but for the most part not. What it had for me was a, a very profound sense of the need for humility, forgiveness, the beauty and wonder of creation, and the, the, the power of suffering to transform the world. And I do think that those big themes have emerged in certain moments in my life that have really sustained me. And when you ask what faith is, I think it is those kind of deep convictions of what's what's good and what's evil, and one thing that if you if I one thing that I the paradox of our modern life surely is that, as you say at the beginning of the book, is that we've managed to construct a world now in which we can fix anything. You know, hmm. We we have I mean I'm alive because we can fix things. The, right. the capacity we're probably going to survive as a species not because we're capable of self restraint, but because we're going to figure out a technological fix to yeah. non carbon. Because we're just so energy. damn clever we're at so the end of the day. Yeah. Clever. In the end, yeah. we'll figure it out. But that's a delusion about life. Life is not fixable. It's it's a category error. Death is not cheatable. Life is not fixable. No. But you know, you said you talk about paradox 
paradoxes. To me, the greatest paradox of all is is an amendment of something you said before. You said, you know, you you learned when when a profound medical event happened in your life that that we ultimately don't have control. I learned that to some degree when I was told, hey, you might go blind and there's nothing you can do, no lifestyle change, no medicine we have, whatever. And I and I live with that possibility as we talk right now. And you're right, we have no control. And yet we have the ultimate control. We can't control what befalls us. You know, we can't control that sort of thing. We can absolutely control our attitude about it or or to a very large degree. We can control, we can't control events. We can control the way we respond to events, the way we think about those events. And that's an enormous degree of control. So the riddle of life to me is we have no control and we have enormous control. And figuring out how to find peace with that and figuring out what that means in terms of the way you respond to the world, that to me is the great challenge of life. To change the things you can change and not change things you cannot oh, no, and know, and now we're know back, the difference. Now we're back to, no, 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 we're I'm back so, to words that can be stitched on a needle. No, 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 I'm just, that's an amazing, <laughs> that's one of the most profound of the, the AA prayers is, is, is that's the serenity, the serenity prayer, prayer, right? Isn't that yeah, what it's called? It's yeah. It's and it's, but it's, but it's true. But no, but the point I was trying to get at is that, is that we have we are furiously constructing a society, and it's only when we are broken or thrown out of that society briefly by an understanding of our mortality, our needs, that we that we learn how to live. We're kind of creating a society that's built for denial of death, denial of suffering, where in fact, the acceptance of death and suffering is the beginning of maturity, the beginning of being able to live, the avoidance of those two things, the pathological avoidance of those things is, is a way not to live. I think, I mean, as you say, as you get older, you, you lose more, but you could, but, but at the same time, you're more capable of letting things go. But you're sort of you're sort of describing as you were speaking and 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 speaking so well, of course, you're sort of describing you're sort of describing every religious parable there ever was. You're sort of, you know, and and I mean that in the broadest sense. As you were talking, I was thinking how many Greek myths are about you know hubris, and once you finally see through it and give it up, you know, you have solved one of the great riddles of life. How many how many stories in the Bible are about being cast out? and finding a new sort of wisdom and, or an understanding and empathy and connection by being cast out. This is sort of the universal story, right? This is the quote that come, came to my mind. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. That's Eliot, of course. That, and to some extent, when I was a kid... But so that is... Wait, so the, the Albie quote is a companion to that. And the Albie quote is, is what? Sometimes it, I'm not getting it word for word, and I think it's from the zoo story. Sometimes you have to go a long way out of the way to come a short way back. Right. That I would argue that's almost an anagram of what you just read. Yeah. But you know, in the more absurdist yeah. vein of Edward Elby. But Elliot, for me, actually growing up, I know this is I know it's just I'm a weird nerdy kid who was reading T.S. Eliot when he was ten. But that sense of the utter futility of life you know the ultimately if, if it's about it's about learning the core thing slowly so so you're already born with everything that you know but you have to learn why it's all true and i guess delusion in life is about not 
not recognizing the place for the first time, not recognizing it when you get there. This is all incredibly deep and we should probably be much higher than we currently are. <laughs> well, I'm just like, <laughs> I'm like, it's funny. I mean, all the associations now I'm thinking like, are we talking about the movie? It's a wonderful life. I mean, so many stories come back to this essential lesson, this essential truth, which no. we flee from every minute of the day. And certainly the life is full of just dis distraction. Life is full of just life is full of distractions and, you know, almost kind of tricks. You know, I, I, there's so much that, uh, that, that pulls our gaze away from what is so obvious and from what we need to see right in front of and us. And that's we've always just, been, we've constructed these lives that are just full of noise and distraction. That's, that's always been the case. But in the 21st century, we have been, again, so brilliant at concocting the most astonishingly effective distractive devices. The internet is insane. Social media, in, these, are, these are addictive, well, compulsive activities that are designed to stop us from listening sitting still looking around us i mean i i will confess to him and i i i walk i walked my dog this morning through a beautiful park in, in sort of rain and i was looking at my phone I, halfway through i'm like why am i looking at my phone look at the world and make sure bowie isn't you know finding another disgusting thing to eat wait your dog is named bowie yeah like david bowie i know i have met so many dogs named bowie there there was it's interesting that many people go to the now. I'm assuming after David, right? Well, the truth is, she's a rescue dog, and that was the name she came with, and I loved it. So I didn't yeah, come no, up with it name. myself. But yeah, I presume it's it's David. Around here, we have Bowie, Maryland, Bowie, Maryland. So there, there's a there's a place name near to DC that 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 could be. But no, it's it's about David Bowie. Yeah. Well, no, I think that's great. Ziggy, Ziggy Stardust is one of my, you know, five or ten Desert Island albums yeah. you know, that you could just bring and listen yes, to. Yes, yes. Well, Bowie's a, a great figure. Frank, I'm just going to finish by asking you, I mean, you've also been a political writer. I, you know, I've been struggling the last few years by, well, I've been struggling for the last 20 years with how <laughs> completely bonkers the right has gone in so many different ways. <laughs> But in the last five years, I've also been incredibly upset about how crazy the left has gone in in some ways, too. Now, I understand that that you that there is a strong argument that the actual threat to our democracy comes primarily from the right. But I but I also think that that those of us who've been associated, for example, with gay rights at some point have to say seriously, with all due respect, this is some of what we're arguing for now is at least at least needs to be better understood or explained before it's just imposed on people. The ideology that we have to, the abolition of biological sex in favor of gender identity, for example, as a core concept, and having to believe that in order to enter polite society. As you've noticed, have you not, in the media, that the terms of discourse, the, the spell, I mean, the, the boundaries of discourse being tightened. Yes, that's fair. Why, why, why? Uh, you know, I, I don't know why, but I I have observed some of what you're referring to there. It it concerns me, and and it concerns me, in fact, partly Andrew, in the context of something else you just mentioned, which is that that on the the right right now is the threat to democracy. I think the stakes right now are so high in terms of whether, given given how far gone the Republican Party in America at this moment in time is when it comes to being tethered to the truth, when it comes to regard for institutions, when it comes to regard for democracy, the stakes are so high that I get frustrated that some of the, some of the questions people want to ask, 
about some of the some of what the what progressives are proposing, some of the kind of conversations on the left, some of the questions that people want to ask, some of the things they're still still struggling with, some of the reservations they have, those can't be dismissed in a cavalier way. And the purity test can't be so stringent and so forcefully imposed that you send people running into the arms of the Republican Party right now because the stakes are so high. And so what I want to say to to many progressives and many people on the left, the kind you write about and sometimes rail against, what I want to say is, you know, you have some principles here that are very important. You have some ideals that we should definitely discuss. Some of your solutions feel a little bit out there. But right now, do not ask so much of people. Do not impose such rigorous and unforgiving and exacting purity tests that you make the Democratic Party an inhospitable place at a moment when the Democratic Party, at least, is where democracy is still regarded, institutions are still treasured to some degree, and where, and where when somebody wins an election, they win an election. You know, we don't talk about Italian satellites or whatever the latest kooky conspiracy theory. So I just, I just wish we would understand the stakes and have conversations and, and, and let go of the purity test in a way that get us past this very, very frightening juncture where I think democracy is under threat. It seems to me the one thing that, I mean, I, I think that's very powerfully put, that one of the things that I learned and maybe our generation did learn with things like the marriage equality movement is start from the assumption that people, of, of, of talking about what we have in common, a minority has in common with the majority, build a conversation that shows you're not afraid of being asked all sorts of questions. It may be humiliating at times. It wasn't fair that gay people had to stand up in the 90s and explain our lives. It wasn't easy either, especially when it hadn't really been done before. But it was necessary. Just you're a minority. Not everybody understands. On, right. on some questions, if someone has a, a kind of immediate concern or hostility, like you take the transgender question, it is completely expected and understandable that people have a hard time wrapping their heads around something they can't, they've never experienced, may not have met anybody who's experienced it. And right. it's, and it's very hard for people to, to experience. When you look at the polling, the, the data is pretty, pretty okay. And people are like, yeah, we've come to terms with that. But then it's a question of the attitude you take. And it's like, don't be, don't be concerned. This is why we're doing this. This is, this is how right. our experience is. And not as, a, not as a kind of argument ender, but as a right. conversation addition to the conversation. So you've you got to give people a little space. You, gotta give them a, you have to, absolutely. You've got to give them a little and, time. You know, if, if 100%. And if, 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 if a person isn't exactly where you think they should be, the answer isn't to, isn't to call them the nastiest synonyms for bigot that you can find. I mean, that's in, in no understanding of human nature is that going to bring somebody to your side. That is going to send somebody ever more deeply into whatever position they have. That is going to make them feel that they're under attack and that you're not someone they need to understand. You're someone they need to run away from or someone they need to silence. You know, we're just, we're just so bad at this now. And social media is an enormous part of it. You mentioned social media before. I think 25, I mean, it's being written already, but I think 25 years from now, we'll be reading even smarter things that talk about the, just how profoundly corrosive an effect social media has had on our politics. If you want to know what killed truth, what killed common ground, social media and the internet, you know, as, as, as a, 
as the larger kind of set of that more so than anything else. But, you know, I remember, and I, I say this because I'm gay and I have written for many decades about the importance of treating gay people with dignity, treating me with dignity, treating my friends with dignity. I've written like you in favor of marriage equality, not as soon and not as eloquently, but I have. And yet I was sort of shocked when I looked up, if you remember, it wasn't until 2012 that President Obama came out for marriage equality. It wasn't until early 2013 that Hillary Clinton uh, formally dropped her opposition to same-sex marriage. And yet I remember by 2014, if you were a 65-year-old Baptist woman in Alabama who wasn't with the program, you were an irredeemable bigot. Well, wait a second. Does <laughs> she's she's a year and a half behind President Obama? Have a little understanding and kind of you know take history and context and and people's slow movements to the right place into account. I don't think we're doing that anymore. Well, we're not giving people the room to to learn and move and grow, and we're making them hunker down wherever they are. It's bad politics. It's just bad understanding of human behavior. Yeah, for me. I agree with all of that. For me, the, the in the term liberal democracy, which is sort of what I, which I think is a, a better term for what's at stake than just democracy. Yes, uh, that's good. It is, it is driven, it's a democratic debate that's driven by mutual respect, driven by the knowledge that we're all in it together and somehow we've all got to live in the same bloody country and therefore a certain amount of restraint and generosity to the other side is important for the whole thing to function or it will simply degenerate into tribal warfare which is what is happening everywhere and therefore it does matter the tone that you actually do adopt and it, it does matter whether you're driving people further into their own ditches. It does matter that you won't debate someone. It does matter when you're saying we'd rather ban someone from a place than engage them. That's That generates a culture. And this is why Trump himself, because he has not a scintilla of generosity in his in his in his psyche not a not a not a not an even minor tremor of a non-zero-sum engagement an inability to play a game in which the other side will win a few and you will lose a few the inability to lose anything he psychologically ramped this shit up in people's heads in ways that are very hard to wind down. But anyway, I, I regard our current moment as part of the necessity of winding winding things down a little bit. Absolutely. I'm not making any excuses for the way that some of these Republicans, I mean, the idea you could defend this man is beyond me. The idea that you could defend or even cast any credibility on doubting the results of the election or indeed January 6th, all of which are way outside of my pale of, of, of decorum and but. When I look at the left and I get screamed at and yelled at and demonized and I see other people just retreating into their camps, I, 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 it doesn't help. But no, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll tell you where I think the line should be drawn. I'll tell you what I think is an important distinction. Absolutely. If you, if you are a democratic politician, if you're a democratic leader, whether you're running for office or in office or whatever, absolutely be unyielding about the way Trump has behaved and about the threat he poses. You know, name that forcefully and don't move from it. Absolutely question Ron DeSantis's bona fides and his fitness for office, given how deferential he has been 
and will probably continue to be to Trump and given what he has not spoken out against or what he has bought into. But here's what you don't do. You don't do what Charlie Crist, who is his opponent for governor, did several weeks ago. You don't say, and he said this, and it's political malpractice, but it's also human malpractice. He said, if you support Ron DeSantis, I don't want to have anything. I don't want your vote. I don't want to have anything. If, if, if that's the amount of, of hate you have in your heart, I'm done with you, good riddance. Well, first of all, Charlie Chris, arithmetically, that's not going to get you elected. But second of all, there are complicated reasons why people who are complicated may support Ron DeSantis. And you don't want to literally take 50%, 51%, 52% of Florida and say you're damned and you're dead to me. We can't have a country with that approach and you're not gonna get elected governor with that approach. That's that's where we have to draw the line and make a distinction. I, I agree, uh, Frank, you're you're obviously a, a, a aid and a better of fascism and excusing <laughs> all sorts of evil in the world. Please, if, you, if you've been reading me over the last decade, I, I, I know I, I, have not min I have not minced words about Donald no. Trump and I, I truly don't see a single redeeming characteristic. There. And you haven't, you what haven't, I you do haven't. Is make sure he's not elected. Again. I know, I know, I, I know. want to make sure he's not elected again. Well, yes. And I'm trying to explain to my Democratic friends that they're helping if they're not careful. Anyway. That's a, a slightly political note to end our very human conversation. You look great, Frank. All of you can't see how dashing he is. Here we are. I don't look dashing at all, but I, I hope you like the color of my cabinets. I just repainted them, so I'm very proud. <laughs> so this is the point in the podcast. And the, this is a point in the dish cast when you tell me how nice my kitchen fixtures and my blue-gray cabinets I am, look. I am not going to be such a stereotypical homosexual as to say. <laughs> well, you I know am. what I think is I really am. fabulous about your place is the color of your cabinets. Well, they do I match your they match your plaid shirt, your dark plaid shirt, too. My flannel shirt flannel, and flannel. very lumberjack. Jack. Both of both us are, are wearing lumberjack. Right both now. are wearing like old. But this is our '90s nostalgia. I used to go on those. Like I go on Charlie Rose wearing like some sort of flowery shirt. I can't believe what I did back in those days. Oh my God, Char Charlie Rose. No, uh, yes. <laughs> well, moving right along, I am happy to say that we've got lots of guests coming up. I'm going to be tackling national conservatism with Mr. Hazoni next week. Hazoni, who has a new book about conservatism and religion. So that should be intense. And I just want to ask you again, if you enjoy these conversations and are thrilled that I'm not advertising for my new lawnmower or mortgage or breaking to have some ghastly ads, then please subscribe. We give you a column and a podcast every week and help us keep doing it. And uh, thanks, Frank. Been wonderful to chat. And we'll see you all. Thank you, Andrew. Absolutely. And we'll see you all all next week. Have a great weekend.